Hey everybody, welcome to Golf Origin Stories. My name is Chris McEwen. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Chris McEwen. You should definitely go and follow me at those places or subscribe or whatever you want to call it. Uh, we are still in the process of, uh, you know, our giveaway on YouTube for the 500 subscriber milestone. So if you haven't got done that and you want to win a driver, a free club champion fitting, a rangefinder, uh, some money for secondcitygolf.com to buy some swag, uh, and a golf ball clock. You know, if you're interested in any of that stuff, you should go and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Anyways, my guest this week, Andy Fry. He writes for Forbes.com. Uh, he covers sports there. Uh, a really interesting dude. But first, it's time for some music. That's a band called the English Beat. At least they're they're called the English Beat in the U.S. They're called the Beat in the U.K. I think they're called the British Beat in Australia. But as far as I'm concerned, they're the English Beat because I'm in the States. And that's how I, I knew them when they were a band. They're no longer a band, unfortunately. But uh, that's a song called Doors to Your Heart. Uh the beats a pretty cool thing. So they are part of what was called uh, the second wave of ska, um, AKA a two tone. That's the other way that people describe the second wave of ska. Of ska. Now two tone uh, isn't, it has nothing to do with two tones or chords or anything like that. Although much of ska is kind of EA back and forth chords based, but uh it was mostly because the bands were signed by a record label called Two Tone Records. So almost all the bands, well, the the major sort of influential second wave of ska bands, uh, at one point or another, were on the Two Tone record label for whatever reason. Uh, but, um, you know, so as I mentioned, this is the second wave of ska. There are three waves currently of ska, uh, the third being of my generation anyways, uh, the likes of no, no doubt sublime, uh, mighty, mighty boss tones. Uh, speaking of which I should actually play one of, I should play some mighty, mighty boss tones on this show. Sometimes I, I love the boss tones. Uh, they're awesome. But, uh, but anyways, so you, you may not know this song, uh, by the English beat, but you probably know their first single here in the States, which was a big hit, which was a cover of Smokey Robinson and the Miracles' uh, Tears of a Clown. That was a big deal here. Uh, sometime, I want to say, late late 70s, very early 80s. Uh, so you probably know that one. Uh, I played this one because my guest, Andy, I asked him because I knew he was a fan of Second Wave Ska, and he called this one out, which is a great song. So good call by him. Kind of a, uh, you know, I love the deeper track, the lesser known stuff. And uh, so it's always fun to share that kind of thing. Now, I personally associate the English beat with another one of their hits called Save It For Later, which uh, you may also be familiar with. I think it was, it's been in a couple movies. I think it was actually in Kingpin, 
I want to say. Uh, but uh, but yeah, and I know you you won't believe this, but Save It For Later does actually have a Pearl Jam connection. They sometimes will blend in Save It For Later uh, and attach it sort of to the end of Better Man during live performances. Uh, same chord progression for the most part. Or um, I think it might be in a different key, the original version, but it works with Better Man perfectly. So that's kind of how I associate. Uh, it all comes back to Pearl Jam for me. We all know this at this point. So anyways, uh, one little, one more fun fact about the English beat. When they broke up uh, early 80s, I think in 83 or 84, they broke up. Uh, two members of the band would go on to form a band called the Fine Young Cannibals, which I think everybody at least knows one song from the Fine Cannibals. But, uh, but yeah, they, they, two members joined up with another uh, vocalist from a different ska band and Fine Young Cannibals were born. Anyways, let's talk about my guest this week, Andy Fry. Andy is currently covering sports for Forbes magazine. Uh, he's also written for ESPN, Rolling Stone magazine, the Chicago Tribune, and all of doing all of that without a journalism degree. So, and I'd read some of his stuff before, and he's he's interviewed people that we, as the golf community, are very interested in. Justin Rose, Kepka, uh, Annika Sorenstam, uh, this guy named uh, David Faraday, might have heard of him. Uh, but, and it's all good. You should, you definitely should go read his stuff. But, but then he wrote something on LinkedIn, of all places, about his leap from, as he describes it, a cubicle dweller to writing about sports as a career. Uh, and I just found it to be incredibly inspiring. I will put the link in the show notes for you to read as well. Uh, it's got some great advice for those of us that maybe, you know, we dabble in something kind of maybe a podcast. Uh, and, uh, and you know, with some of us would like to do it, you know, as their career. But uh, maybe we're a little scared. Maybe we're a little uh, comfortable in our position in life and we don't want to take that leap or we don't think we can take that leap. Well, Andy is here to prove you wrong. You can take that leap. Just take some effort. That's all. And some courage. Really. That's what the, that's the biggest thing. Anyways. Um, so we talk about what he wrote on LinkedIn. Uh, we also talk about the first sport he ever covered, which is something called fistball. Uh, we cover a few of his golf stories and a book he's currently working on called Smashing Adversity, which sounds really, really interesting. And uh, it's a great idea. So, um, you know, if you like getting some unique insight from from all different kinds of athletes in and outside of golf, you should definitely follow Andy on Twitter at Sporty Fry. That's Fry with an E at the end of it. Uh, but uh, otherwise, I think that's enough. I think I've pumped Andy enough. Hopefully you're excited to listen to this episode. I know I enjoyed the conversation. I hope you will too. So let's talk to Andy. So Andy, you are currently writing for Forbes. Yep. Uh, and you, But you've written for, the Rolling, uh, for Rolling Stone magazine. You've written for ESPN. Uh, you've written you've written for the Chicago Tribune. Uh, you know, maybe a moment of silence uh, for the Chicago Tribune after today. Uh, yeah. So, where'd you get your uh, journalism degree? Well, it's funny you ask. I did not go to journalism school. That's um, I, the answer to that, but yeah. yeah. So you you um, you've got a great. And the reason I reached out, I remember you posted something on Twitter actually about you know taking kind of a leap 
almost um, because you were thrown out, out on the street. Uh, what did you say? Eddie Murphy style in Beverly Hills Cop or something. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah I think um, so. I, 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 re- I think the thing you're talking about is it's just like my one post I've ever done on LinkedIn. That's right. Uh, I'm, I think LinkedIn is an underused tool and especially for like podcasters and writers because it's like there's people like you and me, but they're, you know, doing work they don't want to do and they, you know, they get caught up in like reading about sports or whatever. And anyway, yeah, I was, uh, I wrote basically like, I think it was pretty much how like I got tossed out of basically I'm a corporate reject and you know how that sort of kicked me in the butt. And literally I got, uh, my last corporate job was, I ended Halloween 2013 and it was at the end, the very end of my best sales month ever at this currency firm I was working at. So it was kind of surprising. I got like the biggest trades I've ever done, uh, had a great month, you know, like the summer was, was rocky, but that summer was rocky for everybody in the business. So, uh, I think it was one of those political things that happens with small companies where mm-hmm. you know, the head of sales, he doesn't like your manager, he gets rid of your manager and then everybody, the manager has hired whether they're good or not. And, you know, there's also kind of piece of, or if you clear your P and L, up a little bit, you might get a bigger bonus because you're spending less money, you know, uh, you know it was one of those things. Yeah. So yeah, I always kind of thought like they could have at least like thrown me out the window or, you know, <laughs> right. And there were the city, you know, sitting there talking to somebody and you're fired and I light up a cigarette and blow smoke in his face and say, <laughs> yeah, you can't fire me. I quit, but you know, I don't smoke and we can't smoke in the building. It's not like it was <laughs> circa Beverly Hills cop came out, what, like 83. So <laughs> I'm sure that, uh, you know, downtown, high-rise lobby securities improved since then, but it got the, the wheels turning and thinking like, I'm no expert. I'm not, I don't have a following necessarily on my writing, but I have some you know tips for anybody else who, who's feeling like, you know, God, I hate my, hate my job or I dislike my job, but I really want to do this other thing. And it's, you know, whether it's knitting or, you know, competing in Taekwondo or you want to write a book, you don't, you know, maybe you can't quit your day job doing it right away, but there's no excuse that you shouldn't, you know, if you want to be a sports writer, start blogging about sports or, or so on. So yeah, I didn't go to journalism school. I kind of went to college and intended to major in it and then switch colleges. And it just kind of, um, I was a freshman DJ. I was the only freshman at the, at the university of Mississippi who had, was got to work at the commercial radio station there, transferred to Miami of Ohio. And then it was like from me having my own show during SEC football games, to maybe when you're a senior, we might let you turn on the record player for you know, uh, big band, big band Bob playing the hits from the forties, yeah. you know, so, and, and, you know, at least in the late eighties, early nineties, I mean, there was no social media, there was no blog. You, you thought like, I, I don't know if I could, you know, I can't really become a sportscaster or a writer and I should find a real, real day job. And I got to major in something that matters. So yeah, kind of a roundabout way that that piece that you were talking about was, was about, you know, I think maybe I was destined to write about sports or to rant about sports. And I just kind of came about it the long way, but the, the passion for it always itched in the back of my head. So eventually I, I finally listened and, you know, getting tossed out of the cubicle sort of maybe step it up a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's actually, I found the, I know it's like something that you just sort of wrote, uh, you know, on LinkedIn, or whatever, but I, I personally found it pretty inspiring because I think there's a lot of us um, that sort of dabble, like I, pl- I play in this little space, right? Um, and I'm sure you were dabbling in the sports writers world uh, before you were you kind of had a moment to think about and say, I, I want to actually pursue that. Um, but you talked about a couple of things. You, you know, one of them was uh, 
don't give up on your passion, mm-hmm. even if at the time it seems like it's just something to do. Like if it's just like a, you know, a time killer hobby or whatever, but, um, but you know, it's a passion for a reason and then you should embrace it and kind of chase it a little bit almost. Yeah. I think, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is. I mean, if you, if I told you, if I went to, you know, hired a career counselor when I started blogging at age about 38 or 39 and said, yeah, yeah I really want to see if I can interview Deion Sanders someday. And I don't have any contacts in media, but, you know, maybe I'd, I'd like to see if I could write for ESPN. They would, they probably would have said, you know, stick to sales, you know, quit your, don't quit your day job. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, or you might get the, uh, the person said, yeah, go for it. Really great. And, you know, pay my invoice after we're done here. You know, it's, <laughs> But I think you got to believe in yourself and it's, I, like you probably, I have uh, I mean, you're, you're wearing all your Pearl Jam gear. You obviously, you have to have a, a healthy sense of cynicism about the world. Uh, otherwise you'd be wearing a Celine Dion t-shirt instead of <laughs> Pearl Jam, believing, you know, the, the perfect love story. Right. Uh, I think it's just, you need to kind of be realistic and, you know, I can, I, I'm not going to talk too long here. I can, I can give you examples, but one thing I found is, be, you know, if, if you're open to everything, and you say yes to things, a lot of cool things happen. And, and you know, I can elaborate on that if you wish, but you can't just say, oh, I only want to interview, you know, NFL superstars. I don't want to write about high school football because you might miss a chance to, you know, to get to your end game. You know, yeah, I mean, you kind of, you talked about that, but yeah, talk about just saying yes to anything, right? And how that sort of connects you. It's, I mean, part of it is work, right? You're, you're doing it. Part of it is building relationships too, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, back in the summer of 2011, I wrote one piece for ESPN on a sport called fistball, which is kind of like volleyball. It's like a variant sort of. And it was at the time that page two was doing all kinds of weird stuff. You know, it was mm-hmm. like a pop culture news, uh, subsection of ESPN.com. And, you know, they, you probably remember, you know, Bill Simmons was on it and they had sure. uh, rock stars and actors, you know, like talking about sports or writing, you know, writing the one-off blog. And so the other thing they were doing is like weird sports that are actually real. So I have a friend who covered, uh, so someone who covered, uh, the, uh, Matt Lindner. I'm not sure if you know him. He's written for the Tribune and he's right. Okay. He's, uh, he covered, I want to say the, uh, the, for a long time, the competitive, the, uh, competitive eating basically like the hot dog world, the hot dog championships that they do on the 4th of July every year. Yeah. I think on Coney Island or whatever, it's been on ESPN or the chan- the major channels every ever since maybe like 20 some odd years ago. So he actually, I think he put on his embedded uh, reporter helmet and hung out with jo- Joey Chestnut and maybe Kobayashi <laughs> to like watch them eat 35 hot dogs, like as a practice, a Thursday night practice or something. And if they do like two a days eating hot dogs and tacos to right. stomach, but he was doing that. And I'm thinking, well, you know, so I pitched, uh, a couple of things and got shot down. And anyway, long story short is I got this um, sport called fistball that nobody heard of, but there's a U.S. team and they're playing in the World Cup that was in Austria that summer in 2011. I thought, oh, this is great. I'll probably never have a chance to write for ESPN again. And when I, when I ever, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> when I uncovered the opportunity to write about local high school football for ESPN, back when they had a prep blog, mm-hmm. ESPN, ESPN Chicago doesn't have that anymore that I know of. But anyway, long story short, it was like, I knew somebody was running a blog. It was prep football. And I just kind of emailed them and said, Hey, you know, I know you're doing this. If you want someone else to write about high school football, I'd love to do it. You know, I didn't really care how much the pay was or if I got 
really even if I got paid. It just said, I'll do it. I've written one piece for ESPN. And I think that one piece, and maybe if he looked at my byline even for 20 seconds, he said, okay, this guy's done it before. Yeah. And he said, I'll, I'll get you a game next week. And the next week I'm on the South side covering Catholic League football. Yeah. With Maris, I think it was Maris versus, no, my first game was Brother Rice and Mount Carmel, or sorry, yeah, Mount Carmel and Brother Rice. They're, they're like bitter rivals. Big time, so, yeah, for those that don't know, big time local football, high school yeah. football. That's like, you know, the high school football equivalent of the Yankees, Red Sox when they're both good. Yeah. So, yeah, just, you know, and every week uh, I had a game and I got paid 50 bucks for game recap. And then when the playoffs came, I started doing like Friday night and Saturday and uh, you know, that wrapped up and I kept looking for opportunities. So, you know, I didn't say to myself, oh, I only want to cover pro sports. I don't want to cover high school football. That's stupid. Like if you take that attitude, you know, you're going to miss opportunities. And, yep. and I think you just need to be more open, even if you're an established writer, you know, who knows what happens when you, uh, when you say yes, or kind of just choose to be receptive. I, I was going to ask, do you still have that mentality? Like I know you're big time Forbes writer guy now. No. Do you still, you know, <laughs> you still say, okay, I'll write about that. I'll write about that. Or I'll write about that. Yeah, whatever totally. it may be. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I got to interview Mike Trout, uh, I guess about two, two, three weeks ago. And, you know, like you Google Mike Trout and there's a million articles about him. You, I didn't really get a lot of reads on that. And I know that that's the main reason why. And I didn't have anything major to real, reveal about him. But you know, I've interviewed a couple of, uh, I've written about racing a bit, mostly NASCAR, but I've interviewed a couple of uh, women who are in, different areas of race car driving. So I interviewed Samantha Tan, like my very last story of December, I think it was at the end of last year, maybe, maybe in the first story of, of this year, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I thought, I don't know, not a lot of people know about her, but you know, that was actually my most read article on Forbes since I've been doing it for the three years. And then about a month later, when somebody emailed me about uh, Lindsay Brewer, who races in the, I think the TC America series here, yeah. Um, you know, and their races are like every couple of weeks. It's not like NASCAR where it's every Sunday, but you know, she's really engaging. I mean, I think the picture, the feature photo I put in the article didn't hurt. I mean, she's blonde and looks like a, a movie star, Right. but you know, she talked a lot about like being underestimated because of that, like that sure. people see her and think, oh, she must be one of the, uh, one of the, I don't know, one of the concierge girls, or maybe she'll, you know, hand me a free, some free swag. And then they find out that she's a writer or sorry, uh, a driver. Yeah. Um, and that she's not just there to, you know, be a cheerleader. And she said, you know, it's cool when you get to kind of surprise people and show them what's up. So those were two articles that, you know, I didn't know anything about the, uh, the athlete and sports person when it was presented to me. And, you know, I wouldn't have said, well, I only write about, you know, people I've heard. I've only wrote, you know, cause you know, you miss, you, know, you miss a chance to connect and get other opportunities that way. So, and then I can talk about how that's happened in golf too, cause it's been sure. Really more profound in golf, but yeah. First golfer I, I interviewed for about 10 minutes was Brooks Kepka about three years ago. <laughs> Wait, how, so how does that, like when you say that for about 10 minutes, is it, you just cross paths and you grabbed him or was this something that was set up and said, you've got 10 minutes or how does that yeah. work? Yeah. Was, you know, so I have, a, I have some existing relationships with publicists and um, this firm had sent me some athletes before I've interviewed him and done some pretty cool pieces. And okay. I think, just, they just had this promotion thing. So literally what it was is uh, it was, for, I think it was between the, it might've been a, a little bit, it was after the masters. And I think before I might have it backwards, but it was in the spring of 2018. And so Brooks Kepka was on there on an off week 
and Michelob Ultra was sponsoring this thing where uh, basically if he could hit it onto this barge in the middle of New York Harbor, like everybody in New York gets a beer, free beer next Tuesday or something. So it was kind of kitschy and yeah, like writing for a business magazine, you, you can mention the off the field, off the course stuff that they do, but you can't be too salesy. So it was kind of like, you know, here's some one of the things that he's doing that's kind of, kind of interesting. And so he talked about that, but I asked him questions that you would probably want to ask a golfer too, like, you know, what about your mentality and your stroke and how do you make sure you're doing, if you've got the things in your game that are perfected, how do you keep, make sure you keep doing them every week and not get in your head? And yeah. he's, he's kind of the strong and silent type, I think, you know, like the captain of the football team sort of person that you and I went to high school with and yeah, super excitable, you know, but you know, pretty straightforward. And um, I asked him about who is, you know, who influenced him to play golf. And of course he said, tiger, everybody of that generation, I think says tiger. And, you know, from there just got some other opportunities to talk to other top golfers and, you know, got to some pretty big opportunities by the end of that year and, you know, going forward. So. Yeah. You've um, so it was, it was Brooks. Uh, and then, I mean, uh, Jason day, I think you've, yeah, you've interviewed. Day and Fina were about the same time and okay. they were both talking up the, uh, the U S open, which I think, yeah, it must've been the U S open. Cause it was like, midsummer when I was talking to those guys. And then I kind of forgot about it for a while. And then I got, you know, an email from another person, I think at the same firm that, that sent me Brooks and was like, do you want to meet, uh, do you want to meet Greg Norman at some point? And, you know, it just kind of worked out with vacations and what I was doing that yeah. uh, three journalists that got a chance to actually meet him in person. And that was pretty cool. So, yeah. Yeah. So what was the, was the Greg Norman thing kind of, cause I know he's, he's quite the businessman. Was that kind of part of the the conversation around yeah. around what he's doing there? Yeah. Okay. So whenever the publicists you know contact you and they have an athlete for a limited amount of time, you know they they're not like unless they're unless you're talking to somebody who's like first week on the job, they they know that there has to you have to strike a balance as a writer between you know what um, you know good content and also what they're trying to accomplish in terms sure. of maybe publicity. So at the time, I think the lead in was actually just that he was, he didn't even have a new project, but it was about his golf course design, which he's been right. doing since I didn't even know at the time he'd been doing it since the late eighties. So I was interested in that because mm -hmm. I wanted to know uh, how much he knew about landscape and, you know, what was he just the guy who gets airlifted in to say, you know, put a green here, you know, put his name on it or whatever. Or does he, and I found that actually he really, he knows the terrain. I mean, he's, understands ecosystems and also the sort of, if you do it the wrong way, you don't care about the community that you're putting a golf course in that you can really piss off the, the, the locals and the neighbors. Yeah. You can't, it can't just be about the rich guys who throw money into the project or, you know, the future club members, you've actually got to, you know, be mindful what you're doing. So, yeah. So we talked about that and I think he's, as I've said a couple times before, I think Greg Norman, you could just tell that he, probably enjoys business and being a business tycoon, owning his own firm as much or more than being a world famous legendary golfer. Like, I think he really loves the business end of it. Yeah. We talked about these different lines of business and, you know, I, I get, just got to ask him like, so tell me about your, like your worst days on the golf course and who you hated to play against and who'd you like to play with or against. And, you know, he, uh, the, having been in sales, I know to, ask either a loaded or an open-ended question, then you shut up and then you hear what they say. And usually, you know, they'll, they'll take liberties to tell you what they want to tell you and right. cool stories come out. So right. that's how it works. I, when you're, when you're, so do you have, 
did you play sports as a, as a kid or a youth and teenage years and that kind of stuff? And, and that's where you became like, there's, I feel like when there's, um, when there's people that love to write about sports at some point, Mm-hmm. You've done both and they sort of merge. Like, you know what I mean? Like I have other friends that are writers and that, that cover sports and that seems to be the path. Was that the same for you? Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't a great athlete in high school, but I played soccer. I, I did wrestling. I grew up in Pennsylvania, which is a really hard state to wrestle in. Like <laughs> yeah. Kids up in the mountains are basically yeah. start wrestling when they're three, <laughs> at least back then in the eighties. Um, yeah. So I think that I always had an interest in sort of the cultural uh, side of sports. And so what I mean by that is I always love picking up newspapers and still do like, like non-sports publications that do either sections or, you know, features on sports. Like every once in a while, the Atlantic monthly or the nation, yeah, like what Dave Zirin does, like they'll do just these deep cut pieces on, uh, not, you know, not necessarily the political side of sports, but you know, like, like kind of what Anthony Bourdain has done for for culinary stuff and for cooking and, and cuisine. He doesn't take this, you know, elite chef's point of view. He actually goes to the nitty gritty of, you know, Koreatown in LA or the Lower East Side and, you know, hangs out with the, the taco truck owner or, you know, somebody who, you know, is the least person you least expect would be on a show making, you know, the most outrageous perfect food you could ever have. Like yeah. I think that there's equivalents of that in in sports. Not as many as there used to be. I used to love watching Dick Shap because the one he has this great personality. He's down to earth. He's not trying to stick his mic in the face of athletes the way that so many other you know famous uh, sportscasters do. Mm-hmm. But him and like Frank DeFord and I used to love to listen to just kind of their their. Uh, cultural approach to, to sports and, you know, what make people, what makes people tick. And, uh, I, I guess that more than having involved, being involved in sports, uh, made it all go. And I was also really fascinated with, like, I loved, I don't, I'm not a Duke basketball fan. I'm actually a, a lifelong Vill- Villanova basketball fan, but I remember okay. in the eighties when they would just like pick up the latest thing in the news that was bad or questionable about the visiting team, whether it was like a player that, <laughs> you know, did something he got arrested for or, yeah. you know, they imagine they would have had a field day with when Rick Pitino was kind of going through his troubles a couple of years ago. Like yeah. they, they had these specialized chants and sometimes they chant in other languages and they would, I think there's one episode where there was a, and this isn't, isn't funny so much as you know, there was, I think a player that was from some other college that was accused of um, sexual assault or they wasn't really sure. They weren't really sure what it was. And mm-hmm. this was a game I want to say in 89 and I think Duke fans were throwing condoms on the court at one point. So, which is, you know, that's brilliant and scummy and dirty at the same time. But yeah, right. Like these people actually were taking the time to make a statement through being a fan. And, you know, I think super fans are more than just the person with the crazy wig and the sign. Like sometimes, and I think there's a whole basis of sports journalism that's evolved subtly around this is that, that, they really change the face of the game, you know, and I think that's cool. And so I've been fascinated with those things and just kind of hoping I could tell a pure portion of that story, however I do it and have lucked out with the relationships I built where I actually get to ask uh, kind of every day, I think relatable questions to professional athletes to kind of get, you know, kind of get an understanding of what they are like as people, not just, you know, superstars. Yeah. I, I think uh, when you mentioned kind of the non-sports entities 
doing sports. Um, I know some people will, they'll, they'll never give it a chance or whatever it may be. Like, even I think sometimes uh, it's always funny. So Phil Mickelson just won the PGA championship and I get a, an alert from the New York times and I'm like, New York times, I'm aware of what's just yeah. occurred. Right. But, um, but your point around, like, it, it's almost like an outsider comes in and sees your own culture. Like I'm mm-hmm. in the golf culture kind of thing. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and I live and see it. I'm on Twitter every day and we're having conversations about yeah. architecture and the ball flying too far and all these things. And then someone comes in and looks at us mm-hmm. and writes a story and then I'll read it and be like, mm-hmm. Oh, that's how, yeah. Like this is, it's a totally different perspective on kind of the world that I participate in. And it's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating. It's super cool. Yeah. One of the things that Greg uh, Norman, I've, I got to interview him three times now. Actually, the last time, strangely enough, was on January 6th. You know, I'm like, finish oh, up my interview with him, go down, turn the TV on and see what the chaos is happening in Washington. Yeah. Neither, neither of us know, knew what was going on at the time, but he talked a lot on that third interview about learning. You know, we got into uh, who did you follow growing up? And of course I knew that he was going to talk about Jack Nicholas, but I wanted to know more like Besides the fact that he was winning everything when you were a kid, like what, what else? And yeah. he talked about uh, picking up his uh, Jack Nicholas's book. I think it was like 55 ways to play golf or something like that. And, mm-hmm. you know, learning all the nuts and bolts about how the golden bear, you know, holds the club and how he, you know, I don't know, sort of con- uh, how he, he conjugates his swing against the, the wind sometimes, you know, that, Sounds like a weird thing to say, but I think the best players, like, they think about those things. And yeah. you know, now we see Bryson DeChambeau. I'm not sure if he's still left to put on weight, but, you know, we kind of scoffed at it last February, January, whatever it was, when he wasn't as popular of a player and he was kind of seemed like a top 10 wannabe. And we thought he was just hitting the weight room because he had a girl to impress or he was trying to, you know, out bulk Brooks Kepka or something. And, right. Right. Wow. You know, the PGA champion. No, no. Uh, was the PGA or was it the U.S. Open? The last U.S. Year? Open at Beth Page, yeah. yeah he yeah. was the only he's the only golfer who had a was under par of, of like everybody in the field of the week, <laughs> right? Like he was impervious to those winds and we knew that and the rough should, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, they're gonna be bad enough, and then the winds just belted everybody, but not him. So I mean, there's something to be said about his drive, and I don't know that everybody's gonna hit the weight room and try to achieve the same thing. You know, like what that was the narrative narrative about four months ago, but yeah. You know, like these athletes, they think about these, these things, they, you know, um, another thing I got to interview Eric Barnes, who, uh, he's a corn fairy torn, torn player, excuse me. And, uh, when corn fairy was called off because of COVID, he was just working at a Publix. So, you know, he got a wife and a kid and knew it was temporary, but he's like, yeah, you know, I've stocked shelves and would talk to the other coworkers about golf. And of course I was like daydreaming about thinking about golf all day as I'm stocking shelves and, you know, so of course my headline was going to be like Eric Barnes from Publix to the PGA Tour because he got his PGA Tour card, yeah. I think, right in the middle yeah. of that. I'm fascinated with those little, little quirky things that, you know, uh, it's equivalent to, and you being a rock and roll guy, like you probably, I don't know what Pearl Jam's writer is before the shows, but, you know, <laughs> if, if Eddie Vedder has to have, uh, you know, 18, I don't know, crispy wafers before. So we get a sugar buds to sit, you know, like rocket rock and roll stars do that kind of stuff. I think it's just to be like pretentious and annoying and to show that they wield power, but you know, certain people have like a, they've got a regimen they follow. And I ask a little bit about 
that with the athletes that I get to interview because I'm just kind of fascinated with like not I don't want to like out them on anything stupid and quirky, but I was like, you know, tell me about you. Tell me about your what you do to get ready and how you you know, what's going on in your mind. I think we all kind of want to know some of those things. Yeah. Um, and then one more golf story that I that I would like you to share, because I don't know it, uh, but I've I've seen you reference it and I think you've referenced it before, but uh, you got putting lessons. Yeah. From from a legend in the golf world. Yeah, I was down at API last year. I got an invitation and I thought that, um, you know, I had never been, I hadn't been to Orlando in years and I've got a, actually an old roommate that I reconnected with from like the nineties and saw him once and I knew he lived in Orlando. So, and I also knew he was a Phil Mickelson guy. I think he's one of those Phil guys who hates Tiger actually. Really? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I wanted to see him, but other than that, I was thinking like, well, I'm just going to kind of walk around the grounds and take pictures and kind of write generally about this. Uh, Arnold Palmer Invitational and some of the, you know, sponsor, like uh, MasterCard had a sponsorship and they sort of, you know, they, they kind of bring out their, their brand ambassadors. And that was sort of the, one of the, the things that was happening that I thought I would end up writing about. Um, I knew that I was going to interview the chief marketing officer of MasterCard. And when I finally got to me, he had just got off of the course uh, doing a pro-am with Phil Mickelson. And he was like giddy as a school kid. He was like, oh my God, that was so exciting. He's a great guy. Like he was lit up and that was cool. Yeah, but yeah. Um, I, I, when I flew in, I, I kind of looked at my itinerary and, and my handler said, you know, we're going to be doing some stuff. I'll get you the final itinerary by, you know, by the time you get checked into your hotel. And I, I check in and I think that I'm going to, you know, talk to the C, the chief market officer of MasterCard and some like, you know, so-so golfers, like number 350 in the world at the time. And yeah. they changed the itinerary for the day on me or the schedule, I guess you could say. Um. It was me and a bunch of social media influencers, which I'll talk to you about that if you you care to know them. Yes, uh, I have to know about that. I guess, I guess because I write for Forbes, I'm not anybody special at Forbes, but <laughs> they wanted to sort of take me seriously and give me. So anyway, they they redo the schedule and it's like, okay, for, so first thing you got to be there at, be in the lobby at, you know, whatever God awful time, like 745. We'll drive you over. Um, you're going to meet and talk to Justin Rose first. I was like, wow, that's cool. And then the second thing is like, so stay there, stay in the same room after that happens because you have a putting lesson with Annika Swornstam. And I was like, come on, seriously, seriously, bro. <laughs> you know? And I was like, I, I think I emailed the guy back. Like, is she going to be in there in person? Like, or you know, like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Like if you don't have a, don't have a putter, we'll give you one. So uh, yeah, I got to interview Justin Rose and kept a conversation with him. Totally forgot to take a picture with him as we, you know, like a brag photo because, you know, he's from England. He's a huge soccer fan. I'm a huge EPL fan. And yeah. we were talking about that. And like, we have our phones out, like showing each other photos of like, Oh, I did. This is my pub celebration when Harry Kane scored against uh, Columbia and the world cup and, you know, like just sports geek stuff. Yeah. Man, I kind of brushed myself off and got ready for my, <laughs> you know, my putting thing with, uh, Hornstam. And, you know, she's, uh, she's very Scandinavian in that she, when you first meet her, it's like she comes off as serious and analytical, but then you talk to her for five, 10 minutes. She realized she's got a pretty good sense of humor and she, you know, is actually kind of funny in a sort of subdued way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, just like I shot up and listened. I was like, yeah, show me how to putt. And, you know, it was, it was on this little, you know, green that was just outside the clubhouse. And it was, you know, she had me putt uphill and downhill and, you know, from the edge of the green and it was about 20, 25 minutes and, 
and yeah, it was super cool. Like, uh, I got, I thought of the, uh, ac- the pregame activities, I got the best one. I mean, right. It's pretty awesome to, to golf with one of the best golfers of all time. So. I mean, yeah, something else I think I've, uh, that mm-hmm. I kind of, I, I appreciate about you too, is that you, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. You've been doing it for a while now, but you yeah. still have this sense of appreciation about where you are. Uh, you know, like you've, you've posted pictures of you and David, Dave Ross together, you know, um, like you've, you do appreciate it even still, it hasn't become like, you know, a lot of times people chase their dream and when they catch it, it becomes a job. Or they get a big head. Like I, I I think of myself as I'm a sports fan, uh, first and foremost, like I don't, I don't get really, I don't get phased by famous people. And maybe it's just because I've been doing this a while. And I I think I, I always keep in my head that they're humans too. Mm-hmm. I mean, occasionally you get somebody, I haven't, I mean, haven't had any professional athletes who are jerks. Like, I mean, occasionally I get the ones who I say, you know, uh, tell me about like, you know, when you scored that touchdown or you, you, when you, when you, you know, it's the kind of thing. Like if you ask them how they're so good and what do you, what do you do to prepare? And they're like, I don't know. I don't, I don't really think about it. I just do it. Right. Right. They say three, four times in an interview. You're like, thanks, dude. Thanks a lot. That gives me a lot to write with. I've had a couple of those, maybe two or three, but generally like, I think some of them are, are, it's their media trained. And then if you get someone who's been out of the game for a little while, like I got to interview Scotty Pippen last summer. Um, and it, it, I wasn't allowed to ask him about the last dance. And I think I thought he, I thought it was interesting fine for the most part, but I mean, maybe he felt like he got not really portrayed fairly. Anyway, I didn't have to ask him about that, but I knew that, you know, he's part of the dream team and the 92 dream team. So I thought, well, maybe he has something interesting to say about the Olympics because nobody really asked him about that because it's always bulls, 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 Michael Jordan, you yeah. know, six championships. And he talked about how much pride he had in being part of that. And, you know, also he feels like the rest of the world at that time in 92 and probably still now was really interested in the NBA and they were also just genuinely the players interested in seeing how much the rest of the world cared about basketball. And if they did to the same degree, it wasn't just people wanting pictures with Jordan. It was, you know, people wanting to take a picture with, you know, Chris Mullins or to shoot around with, uh, you know, BJ or Armstrong or whoever. I don't even remember who was all in the, all in the team, but yeah, John Stockton, probably, great, yeah. Yeah, John Stockton, yeah. um, you know, the, um, that, you know, uh, that he took a lot of pride in that. And I was interested in probably whatever he would have to say about it. And I, you don't need to get controversial. You don't need to be like, so what did you really think about Isaiah? Or, you know, right. They really like to be number two to Michael Jordan. Right. His, you know, the adulation, you know, sticking your mic in the face of the uh, athlete the way that like Jim Gray might do. I, I, I don't need to be Jim Gray. There's already one Jim Gray. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. I think just be relatable and, you know, when you get those opportunities, you know, I, I have no reason to have a big head or to think that, you know, they would know who the hell I am because they don't. So then you get someone like David Faraday who treats you like you're just like, he's just like you. And that's pretty awesome because then, you know, you keep a conversation and the interview goes really well and you get nuggets and, you know, unpolished gems that, you know, are, are cool to hear as a sports fan, but also make for good writing in a sports article, I think. I wanted to bring up, thank you for bringing up Faraday. Cause I did want to add like, is Faraday like a real person? Like, is he who he is all the time? Cause it seems like it would be exhausting to be David no, Faraday. I mean, yeah, he, he totally is. I mean, we, you might perceive him sometimes as putting on an act. He's just really easygoing. I think he's probably 
uh, this is a Generation X type reference. Like I think like I have this inner beavis and butthead cackling, you know, <laughs> tape playing in my head where I'm always like, you know, <laughs> this mic is big. Like he's kind of funny about stuff like that himself. I don't know what his take is, but he's always kind of joking his head about things. And he doesn't take himself that seriously. I think those two things melt together is why he's such a damn, I mean, I think he's the best interviewer in sports of all time. That's why he's such a damn good interviewer. And he, you know, he can get, I mean, I don't, I, I never really thought about like bottling myself after him, but I mean, he does in the long form, uh, in artistic sense, like everything that, you know, you and I, you know, as podcasters and writers, whatever hope to, to do with like the biggest yeah. people in the sport. And also like a couple of us presidents and, you know, Bill Russell and other, you know, uh, Hall of Famers from other sports. Like he's, yeah, he's about as authentic as they come. I mean, I'm not sure what it's like to hang out with him for a full day, but I think he's, <laughs> he's really real. And like, so uh, I told one other, I was talking to uh, some guys who run a, a, another golf podcast called Sneaky Par about a month ago. And okay. they asked about him. And I was like, okay, dudes, I'm not bragging, but like I have his cell phone number because that's how David Faraday is. It's like, so I want to do a follow-up interview. Do I need to like email your agent or someone at NBC? He's like, no, just, just send me a text. And you know, um, he's like that. I, I remember, I think the, the first time we did that, I want to say it was right about when his show got, the announcement came out that it wasn't going to be renewed. And you know, yeah. I just kind of sent him something. It's like, Hey, sorry about your show. You, you've been great all this time. I hope to see you as much as possible. And he was, you know, we just kind of back and forth a little bit and he doesn't act like, who's this? He's like, thanks Andy. You know? So if you ever get a chance to meet him, you know, definitely go for it. He's, he's super chill and that's well. And so you're just like, like, you're just like, like text pals with David Faraday, like no big deal. Just kind of, we were joking about, uh, he didn't get into politics, but I remember it was something last fall where like, he was joking about, um, you know, as he would like, I, like that all you need to be in, in politics is like a, be an old person and, you know, retire from another job <laughs> person and go, you know, be, a, be a, a politician and, you know, run the country. You know, it's like easier gig than, than we all have combined, you know. Right. Which, yeah. Uh, I wasn't going to like be like, so what do you think about so-and-so? But I mean, the fact that he was joking about it, like it was just, you know, my buddy from 20 years ago that I've, I, I've known, you know, he's like one of those just down to earth people, I think. And that's, at least that's my read on him. So. Yeah. I I'm always impressed with, we talk about like, um, you know, getting an athlete to kind of bring down their self-imposed barriers or their walls or something. And whatever that dude does works. Mm-hmm. I feel like, I don't know if it's just his, you know, maybe his rep or, or his reputation or whatever it is, but uh, you feel like, whoever he is talking to has forgotten there are microphones and cameras yeah. and they're just hanging out with Faraday. Yeah. I mean, I think he said some real life, you know, troubles just like all sure. the rest of us. And I think he keeps that in stride. And uh, when I got to interview him last summer, it was, I had emailed um, someone I knew who was working, a PR person who was working the, the NBC account, like on the soccer side and I said, do you, let me know if you know anybody at the golf channel Cause I'd like to see if I can interview Dave Fair. That was kind of like my, my goal for that, that summer. And, you know, I got sent around to a couple of different people. Then they came back. I was like, yeah, well actually he's, he's broadcasting the U S open for the first time. He's pretty psyched about that. You know, obviously NBC wanted to talk about having it on the golf channel. So sure. uh, they're kind of like, well, please ask about that. <laughs> and, you know, of course you want to talk about the U S open, but we started out with him talking about the one time he played it that he, he, 
you know, he didn't make the cut and he, he was doing pretty well, except he double bogeyed, I think, on the last two holes and missed the cut by a shot. And like he never played another major again, but he kind of so I was like, yeah, I was like, I was I don't really have fond memories of playing at the U.S. Open, but I love to watch it just like you do. So that was kind of cool to hear him say that, you know, it, it treated him poorly, but he, he wanted to do right by the U.S. Open as a broadcaster, too. And just right. Tell the yeah. stories. Who's on the who's on the course? Yeah. When you're when you're uh, like pitching a story about that, like I'm always fascinated to hear how uh, a story will kind of come to life. So I'm sure Forbes has some input on things, but is it mostly you just kind of chasing ideas and, and trying to kind of, you know, integrate, like mm-hmm. you said, kind of the business side or whatever it may be with, with a sport that you have an interest in or a story that you have an interest in? Yeah. Um, well, the Forbes, I get to do pretty much what I want. Uh, and so okay. I'm sorry, I hear an airplane passing over me here. Uh, I got the window open. Uh, with Forbes, it's basically I do five articles a month and I pretty, as long as I stick to sports, you know, I can do whatever I want. Um, I, when I got an email, for example, about uh, Julian Edelman before he was retiring, uh, I got an email about him doing an NFT, which I didn't really know a lot about F- NFTs, but yeah. you know, Gronk did his thing where you can buy you through an auction NFTs of his highlight real moments. And Edelman's really into comic books and like Pokemon and stuff, believe it or not, he doesn't look like it, but so he was doing kind of a theme uh, of NFTs with that. And, uh, the, some of the proceeds were going to like, uh, uh, I think stop the hate was, is the name of the organization. Yeah. But you know, because it's technically crypto, I did email the editor. It's like, look, I know this is crypto. I don't really care about the crypto piece, but I want to, I want to interview Julian Edelman. Are you cool with that? And I just had to, you know, cross check that. And that's pretty much all I need to do at, at Forbes. I mean, they'll tell if there, if there was a, a mass shooting today, they, you know, they send us all a message saying, don't write about this till you have approval. Right. You know, I, I read about sports anyway. Right. So it was, it's different than it was at Rolling Stone where um, I was at Rolling Stone for almost two years, 2016 to 2018. And actually uh, the sports writer, excuse me, the sports editor at the time was also a Cubs fan from Chicago. So he hit it off pretty well, but you know, we still had to kind of sort out what stories we were going to do about the 16 world series and everything after that. But uh, you know, I had to, I had to pitch and, you know, I knew, I knew that editor well enough that we could kind of talk about ideas or I could say, he'd always say, well, what's your angle? And I'd say, well, what is your, what, what does the angle need to be to, to cover the story? Cause I mean, there's obviously right. you take any sports story, like you take, uh, you know, Brooks Kepka getting flustered, flustered the other day when <laughs> like Bryson supposedly said something to him and right. you cover that from 10 different ways. So how do you want, you know, depending on the publication, you know, if you're bar stool, you want to kind of roll it in mud and make it as sensational as possible. Or if you're uh, writing for the uh, the intellectual sports quarterly, it's going to be you know something very different. So, right. right. Um. So yeah, I don't have the I don't have to pitch stories anymore. Sometimes I kind of cross check them with, with editors, but I, so I focus primarily on on Q and As with you know major athletes, kind of what comes in my inbox and what I'm interested in. I used to get a lot of like back when I was started with Rolling Stone, I get a lot of stuff from like, Hey, do you want to interview the, uh, you know, the, the Red Bull, uh, yeah. actually, it was actually one of them, like the, the daredevil flying champion who's like a 58 year old guy, a pilot who just looks like daredevil with the, you know, like those old style planes with like a yeah. the wings top of the wings below you and a propeller. Like they have a competition for that. And I was like, mm, yeah, sounds interesting, but no, thank you. Cause I don't think Rolling Stone would 
cover that. <laughs> but over those, uh, a lot of those like no thank yous, I started building relationships um, in the sports and sports marketing world. And then when I jumped over to Forbes and it was pretty much anything I wanted to write about sports as game, then um, yeah, it became a situation where I could really feel the variety of stories, you know, provided that it was um, now provided this, you know, got an athlete that I can quote. But the first thing I ever wrote for Forbes in May of 2019 was an article literally titled, it was just my rant opinion piece, sports is better without LeVar Ball in 2018. Was article. <laughs> can we, now, can you send me that? I want to read that. I got to, yeah. let's link that. I want, I need to read what, what was, why, why? <laughs> well, I didn't want to be like, you know, I didn't, didn't want to like call him the, you know, say he's the worst person who ever existed or anything, but I think I was just kind of fed up with um, the, with the shtick. Yeah, with the shtick and yeah. with you know, um, when you know when you've got uh, Ramona Shelburne covering him, you know, like he's the story at the the Lakers, like the you know, right? Is she the Lakers? Is she is she's a national writer, but I mean, she's also got kind of a, a basketball beat, beat writer approach, you know. But I felt like she was becoming the Levar Ball beat writer, and then yeah. you know, there's another guy from ESPN who followed him to Lith- Lithuania to cover his sons joining the league, but all the videos was about. LeVar Ball shooting his mouth off and, you know, what he thought. And I was like kind of annoyed, you know, we sports fans get passionate about those little uh, nitpicky things that, that irk us. And I just thought from a journalistic standpoint, like, do we need to have a senior correspondent covering LeVar Ball? So, I mean, that was just a, a rant that I had of that day. Awesome. I, got, I got some decent reads, but that's not the direction I wanted to go primarily. I think it was just like, I gotta, I'll start this thing with a bang and this is kind of on my mind. And then, <laughs> After that, it was talking with Johnny Bench about like, you know, grilling out and uh, Cal Ripken about, you know, him selling his estate. Uh, he was actually moving out of his big, big house and you know, simplifying his life uh, with that. And, you know, like, but with both of them, I, I asked Johnny Bench, like, so what, what's so special about being a, a catcher from a catcher's point of view? And I want to know, you know, why Cal Ripken thought that the shortstop was the most important possession in baseball. Cause they got some pretty strong opinions about that. And those made for pretty cool articles you yeah. know, that I'd let them be opinionated instead, instead of me, you know, like the first LeVar bar, LeVar ball. Articles. <laughs> right. Um, man, I, there's all just the name, like the, I'm a huge Cal Ripken guy. Uh, yeah. Until I, you know, I wanted to be Cal. So my first baseball stance that I ever copied was Ryan Sandberg's. Uh, the second one was Cal Ripkins, um, even though he's whatever, six, four, and I am not six, four, uh, but yeah. it was like, whatever. And I, you know, I played shortstop for a little while until I stopped growing and then they moved me to the right side of the, of yeah. the infield. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just keep thinking like, so you, you were for the, for the, the other people here that would say I'm too old to change, to, to do something new, or I'm too old to take this chance. I mean, you were pretty, uh, I'm not gonna say you're old, but you were, you were, you were in a, you were in a, a job, you were in a career for a long time before you decided that I'm going to do something else. And and I, I also want to know, were you married when you made this decision? Yeah, totally. Yeah. So my wife is very supportive and, okay. um, you know, she probably wants me to stop shut She wants me to shut up and stop talking about sports. Go write your blog. So I don't hear about but, um, so yeah, I mean, at the time my, my kid, so my kid's 15 right now and he's mostly, he's almost 15. He's, he's more into video games than anything else. But, you know, like 
I think trash talks in the blood because, you know, he didn't even grow up in Philadelphia and he, like I did, and he hates the Cowboys and he hates the White Sox and hates the Packers. And, you know, he's not yeah. the kid who's going to watch. He's not going to watch the football game for three hours on a Sunday. Um, so, you know, like, it's kind of like, you know, my wife would go to bed at 930 anyway and my kid be in bed. So it's like, yeah, go cover football on Friday night. That's cool. And, okay. um, but like, you know, we, we do little fun things like, so uh, it's not, I'm a diehard sports fan in a different way. So like we went to New York, I think about three years ago and my birthday is April 5th. So we went to a Yankees game and uh, I think it was the second, it wasn't the home opener, it was the second game of the season, but we got to see uh, the Orioles were in town, got to see Manny Machado play shortstop for the first time because they made room for him. Yeah. And then also uh, Aaron Judge hit his first home run of the season that game. You know, and then by the, just like at Wrigley, by the seventh inning, we're free, frozen to the bone. Right. You know, right. technically the weather it report says it's 61 degrees. We're freezing. Yeah. And, you know, do you do what you do in New York? You start walking and keep walking and then you're like, oh, Italian restaurant, let's get something to eat. So, uh, but I've, you know, I've taken the family to uh, one of the first things when I was doing the weird sports thing for page two, I checked out a, uh, I think it was the collegiate fencing competitions were at, at like the national championship, I think was at. North, Northwestern um, one weekend and I'd never seen fencing before. So, yeah, you know, it's like wife is like, so what do we do? What should we do for family dinner tonight? I'm like, well, if you want to come up to Evanston, cause I used to work at Evanston at the time. I'm like, all right, so let's go get dinner. And I want to, there's this like, and it's, it's free. We can go see fencing. It was the coolest thing ever. Like these dudes with the wire mesh masks and men and women. So the women were more light footed and, more graceful than the men were for sure. They're all like chopping each other and stuff. Right. Right. Um, we got to see, you know, I think it was by the time we got there, it's probably like the quarterfinals because it started Thursday. And I think this was a Friday evening that we went. So like, I try to include the family in this and, uh, you know, not make it all about me. I'm not going to drag somebody to, uh, you know, a, a, a bears game or when man city is down, but I know that, you know, if, if I want to see man city and they're in town, somebody's going to want to go with me or I'm going to find someone right. with a ticket. So, yeah, I mean, it's just, um, back to the job thing. It was like, I was, you know, I think to put it a different way, I was blogging starting in 09 as a late 30 something to stay sane in a way. Yeah. Because even if you like your job, you know, when you're selling things all day and putting up with underwriters and you know, nitpicky, stuff like your files being perfect or you didn't, you know, dot this I, you're either going to, you know, jump out a window or you need to do something to kind of offset that. And you can only go to the gym so many times in a week. So, so the blogging was kind of like a good release. And I, I, I wanted to fine tune it. I I got like, even if eight of my friends from back home read it, which was what what it was at the, at the time, Mm -hmm. I wanted it to be good and not, you know, just sloppy journalism. I thought, well, I don't know where this is going to go, but, if it goes somewhere, I, you know, I want to be ready and I think I'm a good enough writer that maybe someday I'll get something published and it just, I kept at it. And, you know, it's just like, uh, if you were into Taekwondo and, you know, you test for your black belt, you're probably going to go do a competition and try to win somewhere outside Chicago. If you're from Chicago, you might go to California or like, you know, we all know people who take up running and marathons and they, you know, in normal times when it's not COVID, people go, you know, to nice places to run. Like I remember the thing for a while was a bunch of my Chicago running friends went to run some marathon in Ireland. I think just cause they wanted to drink beer in Ireland and <laughs> be in Ireland to run a marathon. So I ran it, you know, like, uh, that's kind of the same. I, 
that's the kind of same thing I do with my writing. Like I kind of want it to be a little bit of a personal tourism as a sports fan. Yeah. I think having that approach, letting your fan inner fan be a fan is probably one thing that drives the passion and makes it, you know, easier, especially when you get a no from an editor or whatever. So when you're, <laughs> it's a story. I mean, how do you do you, it's almost to me like it would be overwhelming to do, to have so much freedom in your, in what you can cover. Uh, like yeah. you, if you go from fencing to, you know, uh, yeah. what did you, what did you call the handball game? It wasn't handball. Was fistball. Yeah. Fistball. I, I mean, I don't do any of those anymore. Right. But even like what you're but saying, like, still like I, you're bouncing from sport to sport to sport. I mean, you know. So the downside is I don't, I don't have like, if you are a dedicated baseball blogger with a podcast, like you have all the baseball people follow you. I span a lot of sports and I guess my common thread is I, I do Q and A's and interviews with, you know, all kinds of top level sports stars. Right. Um, and that's just what I do. And I think I do it well. You know, I'm not going to get hardcore baseball people following me because I wrote, you know, two baseball articles in the last two months, you know, right. Or and even though I've done more golf, it's like, you know, unless you pop an interesting story that's like revolutionary, but so, you, you know, there's, there's good and bad with everything you do. I don't get hung up on like how many social followers I, I have or, um, you know, it's definitely not about the paycheck because, you know, it's, I, I have other project work that I do. And if I it was yeah. about, you know, making a certain amount of money, then I'd probably be you know, dead in the water from when I started, but it's all been good. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that would, that would, you know, talk about, um, you know, worrying about some things that at the end of the day, like social follower counts or, or you know, even like click stuff, like, you know, people are going to read stuff that interests them and there's so much of it. And if, you know, the hope would be like, for me anyways, you wrote about something that caught my attention and it was really good. And so I decided I want to read more of what you like. It goes from, I was, I was pulled in by the guest of your article, so to speak. Uh, but then, you know, I enjoyed your writing to the point where like now it doesn't matter who you can interview anybody. You can interview the, the head of the, you know, uh, fistball team. And I'm like, I want to know what questions Andy asked and I want to hear the answers. Right. Thanks. So, well, I'm wondering though, that if, if you, you focus primarily on golf, uh, I was, so I asked golf fans this, like, who are your, who's your favorite golfer and uh, who do you root for? And and do you root against Patrick Reed? I want to know those two things. <laughs> I don't root against anyone. I have a, I have a general rule in sports. Um, I watch sports to, to enjoy sports. So I'm not a big booer. I don't boo. Uh, and, and I don't root against anyone. Now, will I like if someone else would win besides Patrick Reed? Yes. Yeah. Uh, because I don't like him, but I won't, I mean, if he's in, you know, I'll watch if he's playing, but I would never root against somebody like whatever that dude worked hard for the most part. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. but yeah, so I, I don't like Patrick Reed, but, uh, I, the favorite golfer thing is interesting because it, it kind of, the way that tournaments are set up, it sort of rotates through. So like, I'm a bit, I like Brett Snedeker. Uh, I like Rory, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Obviously, Tiger is, you know, a draw. Jordan Spieth, when Jordan Spieth, to me, as someone who just loves when when golf is important to other people besides the golf nerds like myself, yeah. uh, Jordan Spieth is kind of our new needle in a lot of yeah. cases. Mm -hmm. um, you know, he's kind of like young Phil almost. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, those are kind of like 
those are kind of my guys, I guess. What do you think about like he's not been, until this weekend he's not been playing really well, but I think Patrick or sorry, um, Ricky Fowler. I was going to say, you know, it's kind of like. I think he was going to be the happy Gilmore, you know, for the non, the non golf fans. And maybe right. Bring, <laughs> right. You know, right. That, uh, I've got some friends who are not golf followers who are like, you know, they said they like him. They don't know. You know, they probably didn't watch the PGA championship this weekend, but yeah, I guess if he was playing better and more consistent, you know, that uh, he would, you know, he'd, he'd be a stronger draw, but who knows? Maybe he's bouncing back now. I, I would like to think I do. I, I know Ricky gets kind of a hard time because he's like in every single commercial on the golf channel or during yeah. golf broadcasts or whatever. Um, but Hey, like go, go get your bucks, man. Like go do what you want to do. Uh, but you're right. If he, if he was on the, in the, the last group on a Sunday, Mm-hmm. I feel like lots of people would be paying attention because uh, one, he was, I mean, he had to get the invite to the PGA championship. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I don't even think he qualified for the masters uh, to play there. So he hasn't been very good. So I think just the story in and of self of his sort of comeback almost would draw. Mm-hmm. And then like everybody likes Ricky Fowler. How can you not like Ricky Fowler? Yeah. He's everybody like loves comeback stories too. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'm just wondering with, I, I hear a lot of, conversations about around baseball now like what does baseball have to do to attract new fans and i hear there's there's different conversations in golf and that you know so for today it was i'm hearing some golf people like oh we we really need this this brooks bryson thing to rile up and you know be, be like a near throwdown be so great for golf and other there's other people like no you know that, that would distract from the game and, right. Right, but I mean, have like a Tiger versus Phil type rivalry between two young players. You know, you, obviously you can't fix that. Right, um, right. Up and, and it's just going to proceed naturally. But uh, there are a lot of great uh, young golfers. I think you know, seeing Matsuyama win the Masters. You know, kind of just having he was unbeatable that week. Mm-hmm. You know, him and Zalatoris. Yeah, like I, I'm a bit of a Justin Rose fan, and he was leading the first two days and. By Sunday, I was like, he can play as good as he wants. He, there's something else going on here that, um, you know, that, that's happening cosmically that, you know, right. that, that's just, you know, we got to, we got to accept it for what it is. And it was a great finish of yeah. the match to see, you know, a new person win it. Like you're saying, somebody else that's not, uh, not won it before and is yeah. a new face perhaps. Yeah. I'm, a, I'm also a big Justin Rose fan and a Graham McDowell fan. Those are my two. Yeah. Uh, and Ian Poulter, I know Ian Poulter is like, you know, he's kind of a killer from a Ryder Cup perspective, but he's just, so, it's kind of like Rory to me is that he's just an open, honest human being that doesn't seem, at least on the surface, you know, you're always worried uh, mm-hmm. about what people are actually like, um, you know, when cameras are off or whatever, but they just seem like they're normal people that happen to be, you know, one of the great 1% at something. Yeah, but everybody's human, though. I mean, I think for the most part, everybody is, you know, if you get them out of their, um, off of the podium, you know, they're at least with people. I mean, some people who uh, are introverted are difficult to inter- interview, and mm-hmm. no matter what sport that is. But um, a lot of them, I think, you know, if an athlete's had some success, they, they know that they're going to have to talk to the press. And then when they encounter somebody who's not, you know, microphone and face, yeah, trying to trip them up or make them say something that they don't intend to say that, you know, they, and you talk to them like a real person that, that, you know, they respond well to that because they, they know who they are. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, you've got a book, you're writing a book, working on a book. Yeah. So like, uh, 
title, working title, Smashing Adversity, it, it really started with the fact that I, I ask more questions and get more content than I use in the interviews. And I found myself asking questions um, like one I posed actually to Greg Norman was, so what, what's it like when you're like, what do you do? And what's it like when you're having a real, little, really bad day on the course? I think it came on the back end of who did you hate to play against? He was talking about uh, Seve, who is, he was very yeah. good friend with and that yeah. Seve could hit it in the parking lot <laughs> or it could be in like in the rain gutter of someone's house. And then he'd still, you know, shoot a birdie. And, right. And Greg would still be on the fairway trying to get his, you know, ball to do what it was supposed to do. Um, so yeah, I've been writing a, a book called Smashing Adversity. It's literally taken the, that kind of question. You know, what, what was your worst day like? Or what are some things that you struggle with that us fans don't see um, posed to all different types of athletes? So I've been fortunate really to interview a lot of athletes. You know, in golf, it's been you know, Greg Norman and Anika Sorenstam. And you know, I'm trying to work out a follow-up interview with her. Um, cool. talked to Justin Rose a couple of times, but then it's also like, I've talked to Megan Rapino a couple of times and I think she's great. And yeah, a lot of, you know, some people regard her, I think wrongly as, as polarizing because she's outspoken. You know, she, the interesting thing about her is like, she never set out to be an icon or a superstar and definitely didn't think she was going to win the golden boot and be probably the most recognizable soccer player on the planet right now, besides David Beckham, who hasn't played for a number of years. Right. Right. You know, um, with her, the question would be, you know, talking about the struggle of kind of balancing, you know, who you are as an outspoken person against just trying to be, you know, good enough to play on a World Cup team and, and, and affect the team's outcome positively. Yeah. Uh, I've also talked to a couple of, I talked to Melissa Stockwell, who is a triathlete. Um, she lost her left leg, bottom, or I think part of her left leg in Iraq um, when she was a lieutenant. And after she came home, she started doing some things to kind of help out other veterans. And she was always an athlete in college and in high school and was just, a, you know, kind of a person who loves sports and decided, you know, I want to go, I want to go do something. And now she's going to be competing in for the second time in the Olympics. Wow. Uh, in Tokyo. You know, like, obviously that's different than you or me having a bad day on the course or, you know, <laughs> right. shanking the ball. Like that's a bigger deal than, you know, I think of like, uh, another rock reference. You've, I'm sure you've seen many episodes of VH1 behind the music. Yes. And we always do the portion where like, whether it's you know, Pearl Jam or Ozzy, you know, or, or Neil Young, it's like they, the drugs and alcohol or someone dies. I think the only band that ever had a, you know, a, the difficult moment that wasn't very difficult was the Bon Jovi episode where like John lost his voice for two days. I was like, oh, poor baby. I remember that. That's amazing. Yeah. No, you, didn't have, you, didn't awesome. have a, you didn't have his guitarist die in a plane crash on tour like Ozzy did. Right. Right. But like, you know, obviously with a lot of these athletes, like I'm not, I don't want to get in their business and ask like nosy things that are really personal. If they want to talk about them, like, you know, Faherty's talked a little about, about his alcoholism and, you know, Sure. Not being as good of a golfer as he thought he would be when he was in competition, you know, outside Europe. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they give you those gifts and you, you know, softly ask, you know, tell me about that a little bit more. But, you know, with 20 some odd different athletes I've interviewed, um, there's an interesting, each one, it's a unique and different story in which they've battled adversity. So I just came up with smashing adversity in my head. And I think, uh, you know, I checked on Barnes and Noble. There's not a book by that title. So I just <laughs> pigeonhole the title and nice. Working on the on the sort of the promotion deal part of it, you know. Oh wow! Speak. So yeah. it's is it done? Would you call it? Like no, a, no, no, no. Oh, I was gonna. Okay, works, I was gonna say like. Well, my my question was when you have when you have a book like that <clears throat> in the works, like how do you know when it's done? 
Like, when because they, when, there's a million stories like that, right? Yeah. Well, you know, basically what you do is you sort of pick your perspective, uh, you know, chapter table contents, you do a book proposal and you, you, you connect with people in the industry. And, um, I've been taught, I've been told, I wrote a novel actually, which, uh, is not published yet. And who knows if it will be, but it's about, uh, you know, you or me, you know, people like us in our generation, uh, love music. And so it's about this woman who time travels back to the 1990s to kind of, you know, fix her life a little bit. And then part of the dilemma is that she ends up having like way more fun back in the nineties than she thought she would. So I got a lot of like polite no's, but then some literary agents said, you know, well, I know you write about sports. So if you have a big sports idea, a big idea, a sports book, I think is, is, was the term that I've heard twice. <laughs> like, let me know when that happens. Check you later. And that was, you know, six, eight months ago. And I thought, well, I got to do something with some of these, you know, I, these interviews I've done. Yeah. And there's plenty of stuff that like the interview goes on long enough that there's stuff that I didn't put in Forbes that, you know, can make for another article. And that's really the basic basis for the book. So, um, yeah, it's uh, still in the works, but it's, you know, it's about ready to, to roll out. Uh, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. I feel like the, the, the publisher's missing out on the 90s book, man, because right now the 90s have never been cooler. You like think I, I still feel like I'm waiting for it to be even more like I think people are like, yeah, the 90s were cool. But it's not like, uh, so when the Beastie Boys, you know, they released their second album, Paul's Boutique, people say they released, you know, it was ahead of its time because it was about two or three years before the 70s thing was really cool. Like, I don't know if you remember, right, you're, right. you're in Chicago, right? So yeah. I don't if, do you remember uh, there's a bar, 70s themed dance club called Polyester's downtown? Sure. Like yeah. any night of the week, you want to go dress up in a bell bottom and dance. <laughs> right. You know, drink martinis and you know, wear big wigs. Like that was... That was really like the seventies were really cool in the nineties. I don't think we're we're quite there with the nineties being that cool yet, but you know, we'll keep hoping and maybe, I don't know, man, I keep seeing girls in like, uh, like overalls again, like back in the nineties and like the high-waisted pants in the nineties. And there's just so seems like a lot of singles, uh, look or like, uh, yeah. With, with, uh, with like reality bites. Yeah. Like the reality bites. Right. Look. <laughs> right. I see a lot of, a lot of dudes starting to try to look like Ethan Hawke. From, from reality bites. So I don't know, maybe, maybe, you know, just another year and they'll be ready to go. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. But I mean, in the meantime, I've got plenty of sports stories to call through that I figure that I've had enough cool interviews with important athletes and I think I've gotten good stuff from them. So it's about time to get off my butt and write a book. And that's, you know, that's what I've been working on. So super cool. Uh, what else do you have going on for the year? Do you like, do you, how do you plan this stuff out? I mean, I'm sure there's some reactionary things, but at the same time, maybe you try to map out at least a quarter or something or a couple months? Yeah. I mean, just kind of at a high level, like I don't do, okay. I, don't, I don't, I've interviewed some NFL athletes and, you know, I don't really specialize in that. So I'm not going to, you're not going to see me do like my, uh, my team ranking or predictions for the season. It's right. more like, I know that when training camp starts, some of the people I know in sports marketing are going to contact me and say, do you want to talk to, you know, Ryan Westbrook or one time it was, it was Erlocker, which was great. I got to interview him. That's fun. Yeah. Right after he went, uh, you know, when he was getting inducted to the hall of fame. Yeah. So it happens more on a rolling basis, but I know like, you know, um, covering NASCAR, I know that, you know, I know when speed weeks is and I'm usually going to do something for that. So the last two years I've gotten young drivers and I've gotten a, a couple of, uh, some, some of the female drivers, which most people who are writing about NASCAR mm-hmm. uh, or even bloggers, like they aren't, con- they're not concentrating on that. So yeah. last year, within a month, like that's that month of speed weeks before speed weeks happened. I interviewed Haley Deegan, who's like 19 year old years old now. 
Uh, she was 18 when she was uh, kind of at a lower level of NASCAR. Now she's in the, uh, I think she's in the Xfinity and the truck series, which are like the second and third level. Natalie Decker, who is a, you know, another driver and she's you know dynamic to talk to. And Angela Ruck, who is about, she's probably pushing 40 and she's been in the truck series for a couple of years and she has her own reality TV show and her own, own following. So that was, you know, one that, uh, her fans were interested in. So I felt like I was doing a different, you know, kind of keeping with my theme, doing a different thing on a, on major sports. Yeah. And not cause I'm trying to be weird, different, unique, but I mean, I think that there are different angles that you can always uncover. And, you know, that's, you know, I wasn't going to try to chase the top guys who, right. you know, I think it was just more interesting to, to take a different, and it just probably made, made helps make me a better writer to find out more about more unique stories from athletes that maybe haven't been uh, focused on as much. For sure. Yeah. And like to your point too, I think uh, it's easy to, you know, the super popular athletes or whatever the best in their sport or the most well-known, you know, like there's a million stories about those people and, and the angles become harder and harder to find when there's this really great story just sitting there for you. If you want to look yeah. Uh, and, and tell that story. And it's, yeah, I mean, that's, um, that's why even I feel like on, like on this show, for example, um, like I could get the sort of, this is going to, I'm never going to get some of these people in the show now, but like the, you can get the retreads, right. The, you know, like you can get the golfy golf golfer guy to come on a, a golf podcast. That's not hard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. but they've been on, you know, a hundred podcasts. Mm-hmm. So really, go listen to those ones. If you want to hear that guy talk about whatever. Um, so that's kind of, I, I, I totally get that. I totally understand that. Although I got to say this, this is, this is a golf podcast and it's around, uh, you know, golf origin stories. Now we've gone through your writing origin story, but I don't like, do you like, what is your history with the game of actual golf? Like, do you get to play it often? Do you, do you like golf? Like, well, it's like everything else in my adult uh, adult life. I, like even writing, I adopt it late, and I'll probably be really good by the time I'm eighty. So, uh, <laughs> I don't. I didn't grow up playing golf, and ne- never really played golf until a couple of years ago. Probably because my dad never played golf. It's funny because I talked to him about golf probably for the first time. So my dad's like seventy five, and um, had my first conversation about golf just off the cuff, maybe about two three months ago. I don't know what we were talking about. I think it was around the time I was interviewing Patrick Cantley, and he doesn't know who he is, but. Okay. Uh, he's like, you know, I used to play golf, you know, until you were born. Like he said, I was actually playing golf all the time. And I was like, I didn't even know. I, I didn't, I didn't even know he owned clubs actually yeah. ever. So I, he never mentioned that the whole time I was growing up. And then he also said something that was, that was pretty interesting. He's like, so do you know, um, we're actually related to Sam Snead. And I was like, what? Come on. He's like, uh, I said, oh, his, I think his mother, um, my grandmother, who I loved, uh, my grandmother was super cool to hang out with. Um, she died in 2003, I think. Um, one of my last memories of her was I was driving from Chicago to Pennsylvania, stopped at grandma's house. And we watched Caddyshack together, actually. Come on. And like, you know, I knew, I knew that she was a cool grandma, but I never kind of saw her. Yeah. Like, oh, let's see. Oh yeah. I love this movie. Like, Really? <laughs> I, I didn't know that she smoked either. And she was you know, smoking a cigarette. And, you know, I never knew she smoked the whole time. I was like, I didn't even. And wow. 
I think I asked one of my cousins and they're like, yeah, she's been, she's smoked her whole life. You didn't know that. Like, well, did you know she likes Caddyshack? She's seen it a couple of times that we watched it together. Um, but anyway, so like my, that grandma, I think one of her, like her second cousin um, was married to Sam Sneed. He only had, he only had one wife. So I don't remember what her name is, but yeah. Um, wow. I don't know if, I don't know if she went to the wedding or anything, but yeah. <laughs> so I'm, yeah. I'm related by marriage to Sam Sneed, you know, the original first best golfer, you know, right. Yeah, so. Right. So that's, yeah, that's my origin is that uh, I was, I guess, connected to golf all these years and didn't really know. Um, <laughs> right. No idea. My, you know, it's kind of like finding out that you, about the brother or sister you, you didn't know you had. Like, oh, here's, you have a brother named uh, Michael and he's 50 years old. You guys will get along perfectly. Like, kind of a weird thing. So, yeah. Uh, but with the golf trip, like the, the, the golf coverage and I've gone and, you know, when I got to go to API, you know, I rented clubs when I was down there. I, I just golfed a little bit. Did you? Um, a couple of years ago, this is maybe about a year and a half ago. I went to, I was in the Bahamas around the time that the hero world cup was going on the hero, okay. the hero. Yeah. The hero world, world challenge. Sorry. Right. So tiger tournament in the Bahamas. I missed the first thing, which was like, like him and Rom and some of the other top golfers were basically having like a target practice where outside some hotel, they had to like land the ball in this, like literally a target in the grass. Right. Um, and then, so I found out the next day, for that little junction, I was basically paired up with three real golf riders. So one was a guy named, uh, and they are all, they're all like, you know, like two handicaps and stuff. Yeah. One was a guy who, uh, wrote for golf.com guy named Ryan Aselta, who's, I think he's, he's worked for, uh, sports illustrated in the past. Uh, yeah. Okay. A guy named Mark Harris, who's at bro Bible, who's an editor. And he's like, Mark is one of those guys who, uh, I played golf all his life made a decision when he was like 14 or 15 as a right-handed person to learn how to play golf left-handed and he's really good. Uh, the and worst. The worst. It's the third one who was kind of my, my coach for the week. Like Andy hit the ball here. Okay. Pick up your ball. We're going to go down. The, was a guy named uh, Oliver Harvitz. So Oliver okay. Harvitz, uh, he wrote, he, he, I knew that he wrote a book. He didn't brag about it. He didn't even tell us that he wrote a best selling book about being a caddy in uh, at St. Andrews. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Oliver Har Harvitz's dad is Israel Harvitz, the world famous playwright. And his brother is MC is, uh, Ad Rock and the Beastie Boys. <laughs> That's, and he wrote this, right? best, so he wrote this best selling book and the book is basically about being a caddy in like your, you know, you're, <laughs> you're lower than the cow dung on the right. you know, adjacent, you know, cow patch next to the field. And, you know, you're getting treated by crap by all these locals, but then he got to golf with Michael Douglas and right. or he got to caddy for Michael Douglas and Huey Lewis, who actually both reviewed his books. So if you get his book, it's called An American Caddy in St. Andrews. Like you flip through the you know the, the first two pages, it's like a couple of famous people have read and reviewed his book. Awesome. He had said nothing about this while we were he was like super chill. He's really like a gregarious talkative kind of guy. He talked about um going to I think Nepal or India. I can't I think it was Nepal. He was covering a girl in Nepal who's a teenager who's pretty good at golf and kind of he does uh, like short form documentary videos and he was covering this this up and coming golfer mm -hmm. and sort of her dream to come play in the U.S. and I think you know at the time she was gunning for a scholarship at like a, a good golf college um, and then like you know at the at the end of this couple day trip he was off to Patagonia to golf in Patagonia like in Argentina like. 
you know, he, that's a golf lifestyle. I'm just yeah. writing a little bit, learning yeah. how to play and taking my eight iron and mostly hitting it straight for the most part. <laughs> and I'm with these three guys who are like either serious golf writers or golf adventurers. Right. Like the MacGyver of golf is, you know, was one of them pretty much is how I would describe uh, Oliver Horowitz, but, but all good guys. And like, you know, I think when you're the new guy who doesn't really know how to play golf, like, you know, not to make people wait and not to, you know, screw it up too much and, you know, just try to have fun and yeah, don't ask too many stupid questions. And, but um, yeah, I mean, the, the playing, as you know, kind of gears you kind of put, kind of puts you, puts your head in the game more. So then not That's that we true. know anything about the perfect swing, but when you're watching the PGA championship or the masters and you see somebody do something interesting, like uh, I remember, Seeing Justin Thomas, you know, he's right-handed, take his left, his, his club and like hit it kind of backwards and left-handed through some trees. Like, right, <laughs> wow, that was really cool. Like, how do you do that? Like, can you take a lesson on that? I don't think so, but right. maybe you can. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. the thing is just learning and loving the game and just learning and listening and sometimes shut your mouth and just, you know, you'll absorb stuff. So. Yeah. Cool, man. This is fun. Well, thanks. I, I'm sorry. I know I talk a lot, but, uh, you no, you said, you said, this golf and I'm like opening up here. So <laughs> as long as I always, I always, I've said before, like when I look at the kind of the audio, um, the less my line does stuff, the better the show. Well, good. That's kind of the rule. So yeah, I no, I'm, I'm super cool with you. Uh, I mean, you have, and you're full of great stories. Well, thanks. Like, I try to be. Uh, they're not my stories. They're athlete stories. And hopefully that's, Hopefully that's what will make the book, you know, readable if not successful. But we'll see how that goes. I can't. I can't wait for it. Uh, I. I think it's actually. I mean, I'm not, I don't need to be the one to tell you it's a great idea. But um, a, it's about interesting people, right? That we kind of know, and um, you know, it can be a bit of an inspiring thing. Like, you know, you can read some yeah. stories about how people overcame some some really tough stuff, and people can use that as their own sort of ammunition. So. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that there's a big market for, I think about how many people have bought books from, you know, the Anthony Robbins and the Deepak Chopra's. And yeah. if there can be more of those books about sports, I'm not saying that mine's going to be on the shelf with any of theirs, but if there are sports people like us who can sort of, you know, kind of move away from the archetypical, just, you know, be mindful self-help thing and maybe sprinkle a little bit of sports in there. I think that might be good for everyone's soul. Yeah. I think the other thing too is, like you were talking about, there's too much gotcha stuff everywhere all the time. And something that just says, I want to tell these stories about these people is, is welcome in my world. It's just a nice break from all the other nonsense. Yeah. And after COVID and staying indoors for a better part of the year, I think we need to be inspired and, you know, be outdoors right. for sports. So like the last thing anybody's going to want to do right now, if they even exist is to go watch a baseball game in an indoor stadium. <laughs> Right. I never thought, you know, it's kind of funny that you talk about that. Uh, I didn't, two things I didn't realize I took so much for, for granted so much was, um, golf. Cause we lost it. You know, we couldn't play golf for a while. Uh, mm -hmm. and I really thought like I appreciated getting out and playing golf. Uh, but I didn't, I still took it for <laughs> granted and yeah. Wrigley field, man. Yeah. I've missed Wrigley field so much. Uh, it's such like a, uh, just a, such a tradition that of course I'm going to go to Wrigley Field a few times, right? Um, man. Yeah. It's great now. 25% capacity is like, it's kind of the best way. You, never, you can't get to Wrigley. You can't be in Wrigley Field with less, you know, 
with that view of people and it. it's kind of great. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like showing up to the game two hours early. Right. You know, but it stays that way the whole get my time. Beers. I'm going to get my beers and relax, and, but then your beers are done by the time that, you know, the pictures are coming up. And, right. You know, so, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Uh, I'll let you go. Thank you for staying. I, we've gone past the hour. I, so, I told you I'd only take an hour of your time, but here we are beyond yeah, that. Yeah, it was awesome. Good talking to you. So that is Andy Fry. You could follow him, as I mentioned before, on Twitter at Sporty Fry. And that is Fry with an E at the end of it. F-R-Y-E. His handle is in the show notes, as I always do with my guests. Um, And I will also put, as I mentioned, that post that he wrote on LinkedIn about how he went from cubicle dweller to sports writer. And it's just got, it's a really great sort of inspiring piece. At least it was for me. And, you know, it talks about, um, you know, don't, as we mentioned, don't give up on your passion, Uh, you know, build relationships. And then the other big one to me, the big takeaway was, was take chances, put yourself out there. You know, if you've got an obsession, if you, if you know a lot about something or you just have a passion for doing X, take the chance and, and start to pursue it. Even if it's, you know, a guest blog on some website, no one's ever heard of, right? Do it, say yes, write it, pitch it, whatever your idea is, pitch it, find someone that will, that will post it. And, and every time you do something, it's, it's practice for the next time you do it and you build a skill and you build those relationships while you're doing it. And again, I I can't recommend reading that stuff enough. I can't recommend following Andy. He's, he doesn't take himself too seriously. As you can tell, he's just a fun follow on Twitter and he's a, he's a really, really good reporter and journalist and asks, like he said, he asks questions that we would want to ask people. And I think that's one of the biggest compliments you can give to someone in Andy's position uh, as a reporter, as a journalist, when he gets the chance to meet these people. So that's the show. Thanks again for listening. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube, as I mentioned before, at Chris McEwen. And uh, and I think uh, we should just close it out with uh, a little bit more of the English beat. Talk to everybody next week. Too much, why can't we just be locked on?